Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm your co-host, Connor Chato. And today we're here with Mega Varma. Thanks for being with us. Hey. Uh, so how would you describe your research, your second year master's student studying neuroscience, correct? Yes. Uh, I work with Andrew Przinsky and Ravi Menon. And my research is about improving our ability to scan um, non-human primates using fMRI, which stands for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. And this is actually an extremely powerful tool because it allows us to see in real time how activity in the brain is changing um, using like a very powerful magnet. The one at Western is 7 Tesla, so that is many thousands of times stronger than the, <laughs> than the Earth's magnetic field. Wow. So when we scan non-human primates, it's really useful to study their brains because it's so similar to human beings. Um, however, it's very time consuming and challenging to train these animals to enter the scanner without moving. And if they do move in the scanner, it can kind of negate the whole use of the scanner because it's so sensitive to motion and the signal to noise ratio um, would not be adequate for anal analyzing any kind of useful information. So some labs around the world use restraints, but using the restraints is difficult because it can cause a lot of anxiety and then the anxiety can obfuscate the signal that we care about. So um, then, you know, people started using anesthesia and found that that works very well for keeping the animal um, not moving in the scanner and allowing us to um, get the salient information. But because anesthesia is unstandardized, different labs do use different combinations and protocols. And so we don't really have, um, we can't really combine the research conclusions as well as we would like to because we don't know how the drugs might be affecting the brains differently in the different labs. And so anesthesia is something that can likely maybe corrupt and influence that signal that you're looking for anyway, and you have to be really yeah. careful with it? So just because two different drugs have the same endpoint, for example, getting an animal to uh, be sedated and calm in a scanner, um, doesn't mean that they work by the same mechanisms. Mm. So if they're working by different mechanisms in your body to make to have the same effect, they might have different confounding effects on your brain function, which might be affecting the study differently. So if we want to um, standardize the research in non-human primate imaging, we, w we first need to also standardize the anesthesia that's used. So that's kind of my master's is a very small puzzle piece where I am comparing the three most commonly used types of anesthetic agents um, in non-human primates and looking at just, uh, and I'm just comparing how the most salient um, sensory signals in their brain are affected by these three different drugs. So it's a very simple experiment, but I think it sets the groundwork for some very important conclusions. Are, are those uh, are those anesthetics uh, the ones that you like calm the calm the monkey down non non human primate down uh, so they can sit still in your in your uh, in your MRI? Uh, are they the same drugs you use in humans? Do humans take these drugs too for anesthesia? They are actually very similar. So for example, one of the drugs is isoflurane. And isoflurane, so before I, you know, when I was in, still in the design stages of my project, I shadowed Dr. Roedegren-Opens, who is a neuroanesthesiologist at UH, and I watched a whole bunch of brain surgeries um, where I got to see how different drugs are actually used for different types of patients and what effects they have. So isoflurane is used both in primates and also in humans. Sometimes when you have um, a much larger human, you use sevoflurane instead. Um, but it just depends on your 
biology and your different capacities to handle the drugs, which is just different for every person. So it, um, so the, I guess the, the main issue here is that, you know, if there existed only one anesthetic, then everyone who did the non-human primate work you're talking about would use that anesthetic and right. we wouldn't really have an issue. The issue is that people are using different, right. I guess, amounts and they're different types. Yeah. So is there, are you trying to find the one and then, and then set a standard and say, guys, everyone get on board. This is the one. Use yeah. this one. Basically, is that what you're trying to do? Basically. But like, I won't do that with my project because there are like, you know, there's like 12 or 15 types of anesthetics that exist. And, you know, if you combine them in different ways, you have like an infinite amount of like, I don't, not infinite. I just can't do the math. Many. How many combinations <laughs> there are. Um, and, you know, not all of them are equally as safe too. So when I started my project first, I read like as many papers as I could and I made a list of like 20 and I showed them to my supervisor, um, Andrew, and he was like, okay, we can't test all of these. You need to bring it down to like three. So I picked the three most common ones. And then the idea is once I perfect the protocol and the analysis pipeline for this, it'll be much easier for people to just churn out papers for the rest of them. But you, you also mentioned like they might use combinations. Are you use co using combinations? Or? I am. Oh, okay. So the reason that I'm not just purely using single types of drugs is because it's not safe to do that all the time. So for example, if two drugs are acting on the same type of receptor, like it's it doesn't really make sense to use both of them and then just keep increasing the dose. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas drugs that act on different receptors might be useful, for example, isoflurane and fentanyl, because fentanyl is a drug that works on your opiate receptors, whereas isoflurane works on GABA receptors. So both of them have downstream effects of diminishing or attenuating the signal that takes the sensory information from your body and carries it to the brain. But since they're working through different pathways, you don't need as much of a high dose of each one. So, you know, when you're working through two pathways, you can reduce the amount of total drug that you're giving. So if there's two separate pathways, and I guess these are kind of like brain signaling pathways. Right. Uh, if there's two separate pathways that have different thresholds for different drugs, it's best not to risk pushing either of those over the edge? Well, I, I don't know how useful it would be. Um, like, that's a very good question, and I think that's worth addressing um, as a part of this project, but like, you know, a continuation of it because um, we really don't know. And that just shows how important it is to actually figure out how these drugs are affecting the brain. Anesthesia was invented and like, st like it started being used in the 1950s for surgeries and it revolutionized the field of surgery with William Halstead. Um, however, it, like at this time period, I don't think they either had the technology or the impetus to try to figure out how they were affecting the brain of their patients. So they just kind of said, oh, this works. Now we can do invasive surgeries without the patient kicking us. Yeah. Um, and only now are we beginning to question, okay, what effect does this actually have on the brain? How is it actually working? And, you know, the exact mechanisms by which anesthesia causes its effects in the brain are unknown. Is that still to this day? They're exactly. still pretty mysterious? And even, you know, the rationale for this project comes from that very fact. Because if you think about the fact that anesthesia is supposed to block all sensory signals from your body from getting to your brain, you know, that's the point because when you're under anesthesia for a surgery, you don't want to feel anything. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, there are still sensory signals that can be s detected in your brain, and we can see that. We have seen that in fMRI of non-human primates as well as humans. Um, so this means that the drugs are not completely blocking the, the signals from getting to your brain. They're only attenuating it. And by attenuate, 
So you just, for the just diminish, diminish, reduce. Yeah. <laughs> GRE word. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, with non-human primates, uh, unlike a human, you know, you give the human an anesthetic, you can be like, hey, are you okay? Like, what's up? And if they don't respond, then you're like, mm, they're not really, they're not conscious right now. They're not responding. Uh, do you feel anything? They're like, no. And then you can ask them after the fact, did you feel any of that? Did that hurt? And they're like, no, you just cut my chest open and it didn't hurt. I didn't feel it. I don't remember it. We're good. But I don't know how you would like check that in a non-human primate. <laughs> That's a very good question. And this is one that we do have an answer to. Um, so there's if you're doing uh, any kind of procedure that's not in the scanner, you can, you have a lot more things that you can check easily. For example, there's the eyelid reflex. Um, there's uh, reflexes of the muscles that you can check. and But th these kinds of things are not accessible to us when the animal is being scanned. So we use its heart rate and its respiration. So if its heart rate starts to rise above a certain level, then we increase the anesthetic dose. And, and as the procedure goes on, so for example, if we have a two-hour scan, um, the level of anesthetic necessarily increases because it kind of gets used to it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know exactly how to define it mechanistically yet, but... Kind of like a tolerance to the anesthetic. Yeah. That just it's just over time, it needs more and more. Yeah. Hmm. Like hab habituation on a short, short level, I guess. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, so that's why like, I don't write down like one dose for the anesthetic for a specific experiment. I write a range because... Mm -hmm it's unwise to keep it. If, if the anesthetic is at 1% for the entire two hours, it might be sedated for the first hour, and then the second hour you might have it jumping around the room. Mm -hmm. And that's, so. and okay, so I mean, if it's if it's outright moving, then then, then you you know that they're not, they're not exactly. anesthetized anymore. But the heart rate, you use that kind of as yeah. a proxy measure. I guess, um, you know, if they're, if they're hurting or they're stressed, then, then their heart rate's gonna go up? Right, exactly. Okay. Hmm. Um, in human surgeries, um, they use something else to figure out the anesthetic dose. Actually, I would like to debunk a myth right now while I'm speaking to everybody. Perfect. Excellent. We love <laughs> myth <forward>. debunking. <laughs> so there's something called uh, the MAC, which is the molecular alveolar con concentration. No one's going to remember that word. But it's commonly thought that the MAC level can tell you exactly what dose of anesthetic is needed for a certain person. But that's not true at all. Actually, it's not a very useful measure. Um, because the MAC for one person might be completely different than another person, and this can change from day to day. So yeah. That makes this so much more complicated. That it's means... It's not even consistent between people. Yeah, so it's not really a very useful measure. So instead, in a human brain surgery, they put uh, EEG electrodes on the, on the person's forehead, and real-time, they look at the EEG signal of the brain, and... Uh, based on specific patterns that only a neuroanesthesiologist with years of experience could recognize, um, they can tell when someone is about to wake up and how asleep they are. And I asked Dr. Tokens, how did you know that? He said, I just, I just looked at it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, good. Wow. <laughs> what a gift. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, um, I mean, that opens up a, a bunch more questions. But just to, like, you know, close the loop on, on the, the MAC uh, myth, Mm -hmm. um, this MAC thing um, is is something we measure in lungs, I suppose, and then and, um, and then they got this one measure and they, and and supposedly it like applied to all humans. It's not even a lung measure. It's like it's more of like an LD fifty measure. So it's like for fifty percent of the population, this was the do dose at which they achieved anesthesia. Like 
Oh, so they 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 got some measure using the actual yeah. drug. It's that like an epidemiological thing with a with a population, and then yeah. tried to apply that to the everyone. Exactly. But it's really the average, and you said people vary, and then within in the individual they vary right. too. So it seems like a really useless measure. Exactly. Yeah. I think it was before we had like much fancier tools. They were trying to make it work somehow, but now we have like better things to use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the detail you can get by literally just looking at every little electrical signal yeah. is going to be so. Is, so, so is that like kind of like personalized medicine? If you were to go in for a surgery, let's say I was going for brain surgery tomorrow, would they have to take all these pre- all these preliminary measures of me to like determine how to do the surgery on me? Um, maybe for other aspects of the surgery, I, I'm not sure, but for the anesthetic portion of it, I think anesthesiologists are very good at figuring out what is needed for that specific person just based on meeting you you know like uh there's like in the perioperative care they look at your the condition of your airways so if your airways are really like bad for example if you're a smoker or if you have any kind of muscle issues then they're not going to give you inhalational anesthesia because it's unreliable they'll give you tiva which is injected anesthesia so this is like propofol for example and fentanyl Actually, yeah. I mean, I, I think I had surgery. I had a surgery when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and I think it was injectable. And maybe they chose to do that because I have asthma. Yeah, mm. that's a very good reason for doing that. I also I wa- once watched a surgery. Um, it was an ENT surgery of a patient who had a whole bunch of tumors along their um, along their esophagus, and so they were trying to remove the tumors. But you know, you can't have the inhalational anesthesia in while you're doing it. So the patient did get some TIVA, but because the patient had been using fentanyl quite frequently, um, like uh, like abusing fentanyl, uh, they were less sensitive to that type of anesthetic. So they did have to get inhalational. So what the surgeon was literally doing was putting in the inhalational, counting, and then they took it out and then they, had, they were on the clock of how long they had to remove certain tumors with their tools. Wow. And then they put it back in and they took a break and then they took it out again and then started Wow. So it was really cool to watch. Talk about adapting to your surroundings like that sounds very stressful. <laughs> That's very similar to heart surgery, actually, because during heart surgery, like valve replacements, um, like what uh, Dr. Kiai does at UH, it, it's actually like famous for that. U- UH is famous for that. Um, so during the mitral valve replacement, you kind of have to turn off the lungs while you're doing certain portions of the surgery. And so the anesthesiologist is always kind of you know, reminding the surgeon, like, okay, you have only this much time left, then I have to turn the lungs back on, you know? Wow, to be able to balance that, too, and to realize the complicated things where you gain a resistance to this particular (laughs) anesthesia as you're dosed with it, so there's there's like a second right. thing to consider there. So you're, well. so you're now super well versed, I mean, like on lots of different surgery <laughs> uh, things about surgery. How did you uh, how did you get involved in this? Like, how did you come to this project in, at, at Western? Um, so I I am well I guess well versed in surgeries because I was always interested in shadowing because I think that the best way to figure out if something is meant for you to do is just to do it and try yeah. to see what it's like to be in that environment. So when I was considering becoming a doctor, I shadowed as many types of different doctors as I could and for as long as I could. So I shadowed Dr. Kiai for two weeks, um, watching heart surgeries and also shadowing him in clinic. I lived in, I shadowed a, um, an internal medicine doctor for two weeks where I lived with her. And for one week, this was at South Lake Hospital, which is the, one of the largest hospitals in Toronto. And the other week was in uh, Campbellford, which is a teeny tiny town two hours away from Peterborough with one street and one amazing bakery. Um, 
And then I shadowed Dr. Nopens because he was on my committee and thought it would be cool for me to see brain surgeries. And I was like, yo, that sounds awesome. So, so all that shadowing was that was that part of the neuroscience program, or was that before? No, that you? was uh, my own uh, pluckiness. <laughs> so you can just kind of send an email and say, "Hey, can I hang out with you while you're doing this surgery?" You know, I, there are so many things that I do right now that are just from sending emails to random people yeah. about stuff that I want to do, and it just and some of them just end up answering, and then I have cool opportunity. That's really cool. That's good to know, and and I feel like good to tell all the people who are maybe afraid to send emails is that it can work out you can end up yeah watching the key is not to re- read your email more than twice okay and just hit send <laughs> just hit send <laughs> i like it Bold. Just send it Bold. yeah <laughs> yeah nice so you've gotten involved in a lot of different things and you know outside of i just like to take any opportunity that i can to learn i find that like I am at Western, which is like one of those top research universities, not only in Canada, but in the world. And, you know, any building that you walk into, there's going to be an expert on something there. And it's like, there's just so much to learn everywhere. You should take every opportunity that you can. Cool. Uh, Do you find you balance the scientific part of what you do with other hobbies? Like, Yes, I do. So I, I really love art. And literature and I actually this year started like painting more and uh, this year I raised a thousand dollars for the Children's Wish Foundation just by selling paintings Wow congrats that's amazing so, that was pretty cool so just like on your on your free time at home you were painting and then yeah. decided like I could sell these and then help well, a charity I made an H- Instagram how... for my art huh. and then I and then like you know a friend of mine was like oh I want to buy that painting like can I have it and I was like okay and then so I sold one and then I realized like, you know, I can just give this to charity because after I pay for my paints, which were from the dollar store and the canvases, which were also from the dollar store, <laughs> you know, it's not an expensive hobby. Um, yeah. More and more people started asking like, oh, can you paint me an elephant? Can you paint me this thing? And I was like, sure. Cool. What, what do you usually like to paint? So I don't know. I like to paint anything. Um, the recent thing that I made that was pretty cool was um, a jaguar. Oh, cool. Pretty cool. I made, I turned uh, Deadpool into a samurai. That was, uh, was pretty awesome. Nice. I like the, the whole genre flipping thing. Yeah. I, I trained for uh, four months at an atelier in Toronto, be, like for like, you know, five seconds of my life when I thought I wanted to be an artist. Um, and then I realized I didn't because I didn't want to draw for nine hours a day. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of one thing. I feel like you just need to mix it up maybe <laughs> like yeah. you're doing right now. It may not feel as relaxing anymore after the uh, eight, yeah. eight or ninth hour. Yeah. Exactly. Like that was, you know, some of the best work that I did, but I was just so sick of it that mm. I didn't want to do it anymore. Cool. You know, um, so before the show, we had a, just a pre-chat and we discussed um, a competition that you were in. Right. Uh, to do with artificial intelligence. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And I mean, that sort of relates to your work, but it, it's out, also outside of the program. Can you tell us how that went? Okay. So when I started my program, I was the type of student who always wrote all her notes by hand in undergrad. And that had been working out for me. I didn't use a computer unless I absolutely had to. And then <clears> starting my master's, it, it's almost completely on the computer. And I purposely did that because I didn't want to continue doing wet lab, which is something I did in undergrad and I was already familiar with. I wanted to take my master's to learn as much as I knew stuff that I could. So fMRI analysis is really um, computer science heavy. Like 
especially for non-human primates, because all of the softwares that are used to analyze MRI data are set up with human presets. So, you know, they have human templates for every single function. So that means I have to go behind the program and code and command line to tell the program how to adapt to the to a monkey brain, which looks a little bit different, thankfully. Um, and so, you know, realizing this, I, <laughs> I will get back to the contest. I was like, well, I need to learn a lot of computer science skills very fast. So I know that whenever you're solving a problem, you always learn a lot faster than when you're just trying to cram information into your brain from like a textbook. So I got an email that was sent to computer science students, but because it was to all grad students, I saw it about the TALIS, TALIS National Artificial Intelligence Design Contest. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, oh, well, I'll learn something trying to solve this problem. And then it said, oh, you need three people to do it. So I signed up two of my friends um, and I told them about it afterwards that they were signed up to do this with me. So <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to voluntell your friends to do something. Yeah, I voluntold them. And I was like, oh, I'm glad you said yes because I've already signed you up. <laughs> um, but they were they were pretty, like, they're the type of people who love learning too. So we started the project and um, the challenge was big data. Like, with so much information readily available to you at your fingertips, how is it that you can figure out what is the right decision to make because technically the idea is when you have more information you make better decisions you know I, I don't fully agree with that concept but Malcolm Gladwell will take a back seat for this moment <laughs> um, so we decided to focus in on medical information because doctors have to make important medical decisions and there's so much information out there like an infinite number of papers you could read on any given disorder so how can they possibly get to the right information to make their decision. So we thought about it for a while and we came up with the idea of using, um, like designing a, a, like a Google search for, but for like medical research. And it would, you know, Google gives you um, a list of responses based on what you're most likely to click on and what's like related to that thing by like frequency. Whereas we decided to come up with a way of showing results that was more salient to the type of information inside there. So we created, um, we thought of the idea of using Word2Vec, which is a type of algorithm that connects different documents and words together based on what the word actually means. Mm. So then, then it would create this huge web that would connect papers together based on how relevant they are to each other. And then this web, then you can apply graph theory to it and then use this graph theory, which is basically analyzes where clusters are, and how much they're related to each other. And then, you know, the first three search results you get wouldn't just be based on how likely you are to click on it or how, how frequently you clicked on it in the past or like, you know, just the keywords in the title. They would be actually salient based on, you know, the types of models that were used, the N and like, you know, how, how useful the information is to the type of question that you're asking. So it's like mm -hmm. a smarter search engine Kind of like if Google actually really understood the words that you exactly. meant and what those words meant instead of just literally the word and trying to match it. Yeah, exactly. So that's what we kind of came up with. And obviously, none of the three of us knew how to code artificial intelligence, but we knew what it, we wanted it to do. Mm -hmm. And so we described it really well. And, you know, someone who is well versed in TensorFlow, for example, could just take that and turn it into something that works. So you guys came up with an idea, and that was the that was the competition. Just give give the idea. You didn't have yeah, to demonstrate so that you could generate this. 
new, new, better Google? So the first um, portion of this project, we just had to write it up, I think, and create a PowerPoint. And then we were like, oh, yeah, we're not going to make it to the next stage. We're, our work is done here. And then we're, we made it to the next stage and we're like, oh, crap. <laughs> now we have to do more work. And then, but we got a, we got a trip to Montreal out of it. And then it was just so much fun. Cool. And then we went there. And we were just like, we're just happy to be here. Everyone else was in computer science. And, um, and then so, someone asked us when we were there, they're like, are you from Western? And we're like, how do you know that? And they're like, you're really well dressed. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> So wow, did not know Western was known I, for that. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, it was really cool that we won. I think I think it's because our project was narrowed to a specific application, mm. whereas other projects were kind of dispersed because I, I truly think that decision-making processes in medicine, for example, are different in nature than in economics. Yeah, so maybe yeah, for sure. That would be part of the reason. Is that why are people like applying economic theories to things in nature? I mean, they've always done that. Like, starting with Darwin, he applied Malthusian economic theory to understand how uh, animals might be evolving, adapting to their environment. Wasn't he successful, though? <laughs> yeah, he was. Um, and, you know, sometimes economics can apply to medicine and vice versa. I just don't know how much. Hmm. Well, when can we when can we try the new Google? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> still working away at it. Uh, still working on that. Yeah. Got to figure out the anesthesia first. Yeah, excellent. Well, I well, think especially when it comes to computer science, the only way anyone has ever learned how to code is by having a problem they don't know how to solve, yeah. and then just everything kind of comes after forced Google Honestly. searches from that. Yeah. When I um, so I'm like a year into my master's project now, a year and a bit, and recently I got a data set and I analyzed it and I looked at it and I was like, oh my god, a year ago I w I would not know any of these steps. Like and I was trouble and I had a problem and normally I bug this PhD student Olivia who's like the kindest person in the world and so patient and I, I would fail if she wasn't <laughs> in my lab. Um, so normally every time I have a problem, like Olivia, how do you wh what does this mean? How do you solve this? And then she would like link me to a paper or a video or something. And this time, like I had a problem and I typed it and then I was like, and then I typed never mind. I figured it out and then I did that a couple times and I was like, oh wow, this has changed. <laughs> so well. I mean, you've learned a lot so far then. I mean, that's a testament to the program, but also to your your initiative taking. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, you do, you learning, do so many learning things. Learning how to learn. Learning, yeah, good learning how to learn is the ultimate is skill. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it's been great talking to you. Um, this We are out of time. So uh, actually, last question. Can you just, I know you said you have an Instagram. I mean, you mentioned your art one. Yeah. Do you want to tell people about that so they can, if they want to find out more about you? Sure. My Instagram is... Mega Verma ninety five, so just name is spelled. We'll throw that in the show notes. Yeah. Yep, don't find that in the show notes. Excellent. Okay, well, thank you for listening to Gradcast, uh, the official podcast and radio show for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Uh, we've been speaking with Mega Verma. I've been your host Ariel Frame here with my co-host Connor Chato. And uh, if you want to find our show online, all, we're all over the place. We've got podcasts available iTunes, Spotify, a little few on YouTube. Um, Podbean, Google Play, iTunes, wherever. We're all available there. If you just want to go to a regular browser, find our website. It's gradcast.ca. Um, if you want to come sit where I'm sitting, you want to be a host, you want to sit where Mega was sitting today and uh, be a guest, uh, just contact us. Uh, we have spots available for both positions. Uh, gradcastradio at gmail.com. 
and on social media, we are available. We also have an Instagram, uh, at Gradcast Radio. Uh, we have a Twitter as well with the same handle, and mostly those two. I mean, YouTube as well with, with the same handle. So contact us there if you want to hear behind the scenes for all the shows. Anyway, thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a good night. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.